0: Jack, you're a 20-year vet, a sniper, a Navy SEAL. You've written New York Times bestsellers. You have a lot of experiences. That's
1: the one thing that hasn't changed since the beginning of time, is that primal nature of combat. Things have evolved technology-wise. It really comes down to you putting another human in the ground, and that part has not changed. For me, there's no possible way that as a combat leader, I would be able to treat a female exactly the same as I would one of the guys. For whatever reason, I'm programmed to protect females. That's how I was raised. I think it's just innate in us as humans to protect those who are going to carry on and make sure that our bloodlines and our species continue to move forward.
0: So if you feel like you have a pretty accomplished uh, resume, my guest today served 20 years in, the, uh, in uh, the Navy SEAL, as a Navy SEAL, he was an enlisted sniper, then he was a supervisor for snipers, then after he went and saved the world as a Navy SEAL, he decides to come out and write books. He doesn't just write any books, every book he's ever written has been a New York Times bestseller, and one of them just became the number, t- number one New York Times bestseller, and that is Jack Carr. Jack, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you for for a couple of selfish reasons because I'm taking notes as we go, just seeing how uh, how you <laughs> how you build what you have built uh, over these years. Here. It's so so impressive, and uh, and I, I sincerely appreciate you having me on.
0: Why well, I, I appreciate that. I, mean, I was looking at your stuff. I'm like this guy. I mean, it's, you know, from one side to the other side. You know, most people end up making it to the top of maybe one space, but for you to do it in two space, that's pretty impressive. So let's let's get right into it, Jack. At what point did you know you wanted to be a Navy SEAL? And if you can kind of walk us through you becoming a Navy SEAL and what that was like.
1: Yeah, so I mean, very early on. So I'm one of those people that knew what I wanted to do from a very early age. And I think a lot of that has to do with my grandfather being killed in World War II. So I never, I didn't obviously grow up with him, but I grew up with medals from his squadron. He was a Corsair pilot. And for those that remember, there was a show in the late 70s, early 80s called Black Sheep Squadron with Robert Conrad, where they had Pappy Boynton's Black Sheep Squadron out in the Pacific with the Corsair that had the wings that would fall off, the gold wings like that. And that's what my grandfather flew. So I had his medals. I had pictures of him in his squadron. I had his his wings. uh, And I just grew up knowing that I was going to follow his footsteps into the military. Uh, I didn't quite know what yet, but I knew military was my path. And then I found out about SEALs. And once again, this is the, uh, an example of the power of popular culture that I found out about SEALs through a movie, through an old black and white film called The Frogmen. And the only reason I got to watch The Frogmen is because I got to flip the channel on, and for those who grew up in the 70s, you remember that you were the TV remote. Uh, if no. You had a dad on the couch, like you had to run up. You had four channels. You had ABC, NBC, CBS. You had that one outlier channel. Those were, the, those were the four. And during the commercials for uh, football on Sundays, I got to run up and turn that channel to that outlier channel because they were always playing a World War II type of movie. And I got to watch it for two minutes and my dad would watch on his watch. And after two minutes, flip it back, i flip football. back to football yeah. and we'd watch football until the next commercial. But one of those showed these guys swimming up over the beach and putting explosives on obstacles in the advance of a conventional force landing. And I asked my dad, hey, who are these guys? And he said, those are frogmen. That was the name of the movie. And uh, I said, what are frogmen? These guys look amazing. And he said, go ask your mother. And I was also very lucky because my mom was a librarian. So we got to go down to the local library and start researching. So she took every opportunity she could to take us to the library and teach us about researching and just get us into books. We grew up surrounded by books and a love of reading. So early 80s you could read almost everything about special operations and most of it focused on Vietnam back then but uh, there were a, there were a couple there was like a couple of magazine articles a book here and there but there wasn't much in the early 80s mid 80s uh, In the 90s it started to get a lot more than that. in the 2000s obviously after September 11th all that information exploded in the internet you could you could spend the rest of your life researching and not doing that's the part where you have to find that find that line where you prepare enough to then take that step yeah. and do it um, Jack, let me ask you day, this. You not have any choice.
0: Yeah, Jack, let me ask you. When when you were going in, so for example, for me, when I went into the army, I was like, okay, here's what my recruiter said it was going to be. This is exactly what he said it was going to be. I was not expecting this. What was it for you when you became a Navy Seal? Where you said I was expecting Navy Seal to be this. That's exactly what it was but I had no idea about these three things. Man, I wish they would have told me about this, or this is pretty cool to experience these three things. What, what were some of those things that you experienced as a SEAL?
1: Yeah, I was pretty lucky uh, in that I did all that research ahead of time, so I didn't show up. I wasn't surprised by how hard buds was. I mean, I'd known since I was a little kid that eighty percent of people are going to quit. Uh, that was part of the draw towards going there is because it is touted oh, as yeah. one of the toughest yep. training regimens ever devised by a modern military. So that was the the draw for me. So so I didn't show up and I wasn't shocked that I was going to be cold, wet, tired, and hungry. They were going to make me stay up for a week during hell week. Like none of these things came as a as a shock to me. And I'd been preparing for for quite some time. But the shock, I think, and it wasn't really a shock. It was just kind of a is walking across the quarterdeck at my first SEAL team. And most of the experience of my peers was was similar in that we all thought we were gonna get issued the pager, we were gonna get issued all this amazing gear, where we the pager was gonna go off in the middle of the night, we're gonna fly off and do the save the princess op, save the world, and then yep. fly back in time for beers the next night, and that was not how it was in the <laughs> late 90s when you got your SEAL team. They handed you a broom as a guy and they said, hey, go sweep that, go paint that wall, change that light bulb, take out the track. You did new guy type stuff. And there was nothing really going on in the world. so, but you had to be prepared. That was your job, is to be prepared to go to war. And then after September 11th, then it became what we thought it was going to be when we first got to our SEAL teams. And then from September 11th all the way through today, uh, it became exactly what we thought was going out there and uh, executing the mission for the country.
0: What? What would, how, about, how about when you went to war? How about when you went and you got deployed? What was exactly what you expected it to be? What was different?
1: Interesting question. So I... The the relief of because you've trained so much and you've prepared so much for this, but you really don't know until you go out there Mm -hmm. and do it if you're going to perform. Um, So that little part, that little Megan question in the back of your head. um, And I didn't anticipate what it would feel like to go out and do those first missions, what that would what that would feel like internally. I I know I would go out, do the mechanics of it, but it was this sense of relief that I have been tested in combat and uh, I was not found wanting. Uh, I did not let the guys down to my right and left. And that was this feeling of relief for me anyway. I don't really know for, uh, for anybody else, but I had this sense of relief. Like, okay, it wasn't just training. It wasn't just thing I aspired to. I have now done it and now I'm building on this foundation, adding experience to that training. And then I continue to add that experience, continue to learn from both mistakes and failures going forward, so it's uh, it was, it's all about adapting, as you know, both in in life and, and on the battlefield. No matter what you're doing, but uh, but that was that was the sense of relief. I think that was most surprising to me.
0: Did you have any shock factor? Was there any shock factor to you, where you know, like uh, let's. Uh, uh, a pitcher, okay, a pitcher pl- plays for high school, then he maybe goes and plays uh, A A, and then hey, he gets called up okay, you 're going to come and pitch first game's going to be in uh, St Louis Cardinals, you know you come out, oh my God, sixty thousand people, and then you get up there and you 're looking at the guy you, you know Mike trouts up, and whoever's up you know it's the different leagues, and you 're like, okay, I got to pitch this guy, the booing you know maybe the the speed you know they say from uh, college football to NFL speed, everything's faster. What was what was a shock factor for you? Was there anything when you got deployed where you said, nobody prepared me for this? Was there anything?
1: I think the confusion of how hard it was to tell like, where the enemy is, where the bullets are coming from, where the mortars are coming from, where the RPGs are coming in from. In the chaos of combat, in particular, uh, the campaign for Najaf, which was a two-week campaign in Iraq to retake the city from the Jaysha Mahdi militia in August of 2004. And it was just chaos and it was like what i had seen on those world war ii movies i watched with my dad uh where just there's bullets flying everywhere it's an urban environment and uh you're kind of not really sure you're hearing this, these tracks and you're and you're just not sure exactly where's what's yeah. what's going on because you're getting these bradleys by these fighting vehicles and they move around they have these tracked vehicles so you're kind of discombobulated uh things are exploding everywhere you're moving in and then the back drops down and you run out into the fight and uh, it's kind of like getting your bearings is a little bit uh, discombobulating, I guess. How is similar is it to that, to
0: that yeah. one scene? You know, the opening scene, scene of Saving Private Ryan where they open it oh, up yeah. and then, bam. Is it? Did you have an experience like that when you went out there where it was sudden?
1: I think that, that experience of the Bradley fighting vehicle having that ramp go down in the middle of a firefight, is dropping you off because you don't really know. You're not as a, as a sniper in the back or as a assault team leader in the back. You're not really uh, in communication with uh, with uh, the guys that are driving. And even if you were, you wouldn't be exactly sure. It looked like the math study that you did. And all of a sudden, boom, you're out there and it's time to go. So uh, that would be the most similar, but I don't think it's anything yeah, Could any ever be like with those guys experienced uh, going over the beaches at, uh, at Normandy? That's just uh, a whole nother level. I mean, you're going in to a place where the enemy is entrenched. The enemy has uh, the high ground. They have they have pretty much all the advantages and you're running across open space to try to get up to that high ground when they have machine guns in place up there. That's that's back when it was hard.
0: Yeah, I remember the first time I watched that movie. I, I get to the unit. It's, I don't even know when uh, uh, Saving Private Ryan came out. So I get to 101st Airborne, September of 97. Saving Private Ryan. Let's see when it came out. Right, and, a couple years later, probably 2000 or something. 98, there you go. That makes sense. So we got to the unit a couple months later. They said... There's a movie coming out that's about your unit that you guys are going to get a chance to see it before anybody else sees it. So we went in, we sit down in this theater with 600 other soldiers. We're watching this movie. It's called Saving Private Ryan. It's about your unit. You're going to be so proud. And at the beginning, we're just watching it. At the end, 600 soldiers in tears, fired up, so f- proud to be representing a unit like that. saying, hey, you know, I'm proud to be here. Very emotional when you see a movie like that. What a great job they did. Hanks, all those guys. Just one of the best movies I've seen of all time. But did oh, yeah. you ever, you ever seen a movie Fury with Brad Pitt? No, I keep meaning to see it. I need to see that movie. So there is this one scene, Jack. It's a sick, have you seen that scene in, have you seen a movie Fury with Brad Pitt? Have you seen it where there's this one scene where they go out and he's in the tank and they're getting shot up and one of the soldiers cannot handle it. He just cannot handle it. He's panicking. He's frozen He's locked up. He doesn't know what to do. He starts peeing in his pants. And they have this scene. It's a very good scene to show that some people, when it hits you all of a sudden, you don't know how you're going to react your first time. And, you know, Brad Pitt's trying to kind of calm the guy down and say, hey, it's going to be all right. Go through it. Was there ever a moment like that? that You saw one of your peers that was tough behind, you know, uh, enemy lines. But then the moment they cross enemy lines, that pressure just kind of exposed some of the fears that we may have.
1: Not really. I didn't experience that. But uh, if you stopped and took notice, uh, you could see how some people didn't really fight to stay in the front line units. I guess that's a better way. And that and good for them. I mean, if they knew beforehand that they were in the wrong line of work or maybe they were more uh, suited to the administrative side of the house or something like that. Yeah. Um, and they went to places where they were less likely to find themselves in Iraq and Afghanistan, I guess. But that would be the, the closest thing I can think of. Um, just because that training that we go through is, is so intense, and especially after people started coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and incorporating those lessons into the training, um, then for sure, it wasn't a surprise what you were coming in to do. Uh, so, so I never really experienced somebody having that type of a, of a reaction downrange, yeah. um, but I'm sure, I'm sure it happened, but I just never experienced
0: that. I, I, I So for us, we, we uh, flew from LA to uh, Atlanta and then we got in the Greyhound, and then we it was like five of us from LA, and we drove to South Carolina, Fort Jackson, and we're driving. Everybody's tough because everyone's from a gang, and everyone's you know, this guy's from 18th Street, that guy's from this, this guy. So we're all bragging about who's tougher. And then you get to the unit and drill sergeants come up and they start hollering at you. And you're like, okay, I'm not used to this. You know what your girl is doing right now? She's with your best friend hollering his name. She ain't even thinking about you right now. She's already over you and just mentally messing with you. Yeah. And then <laughs> it, it got to one of the tests where you had to give the other guy IVs. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's not a big test. I mean, to you, probably IV is not a big deal. It's just, you know, you're just putting an IV in your body. So we're all sitting there, like a hundred of us. And one guy does it, next guy does it, next guy does it. Five people refuse to do it. Couple of the guys do it, they knock out, they pass out, they can't handle, deal with needles. Uh, uh, It it was interesting seeing it, you know, as you're going through the process of how some of the things you were prepared to go through, some of the things you were not prepared to go through. But again, in your world, it's a completely different level. You're a Navy SEAL, you guys are seeing stuff that only a few people get a chance to see. So, uh, out of curiosity for us, we had a very uh, uh, initiating type of an environment where people were initiating new rookies that were coming here. The hazing concept, which was very normal back in the days, nowadays, you know, the smallest joke you tell them, you may get the uh, ETS, the Navy dishonorably discharged from the Navy right. because you did the wrong thing. Was the hazing thing uh, going on back then when you were in? Because it was for us, definitely.
1: Yeah, no, it was, and uh, you know, I, I can see how it could get out of hand at some some levels or yeah. some places but for for me it was a very positive experience i mean i look back on those those times with my new guys with our e5 mafia uh, all together there and going through that that hazing and for whatever reason the platoon that i was in as a new guy they did a, a great job with it and of course the part you look forward to the hazing you look forward to is getting your trident and pounding that thing into your chest uh that's the one you look forward to you hear about it happening to other people that's what you want to have happen now it's probably illegal now you go to jail if you do it probably <laughs> but uh my fan, i mean that was like that's the rite of passage is your whole platoon coming by and what i remember is that the guys that were huge that i thought were going to hit so hard yeah they didn't hit as hard. but like like the guys i thought were going to be like eh, they hit so hard and uh i distinctly remember that and they put you up against the Connex box so there's no give and they just bam bam pound that thing and everybody cycles through in the whole team and it was fantastic it's so mark left um,
0: today is there still a mark till today?
1: No, the pins are so small. I mean, once they go in, it's mostly uh, impact, you know, once you hit like something, because it is big, you know, <laughs> it is, it is the trident's huge. So it's just those little, the pins are are small. They go in and, you know, that's fine. It's like getting your ear pierced probably or something like that, especially when you're all yoked up from doing thousands of pushups and pull ups and buds. So there's a little, little, little more padding back there, a little more armor back then in the day.
0: Do, do, do you think some of the stuff that uh, happens, uh, with the military to toughen uh, them up, do you think it's not? Because, you know, some people you talk to, you say, well, the, the method of war has changed so much that all of those things that rah, rah, you know, toughen people up. It's not necessary today, you know, because today it's more about, you know, maybe a gentler approach to toughen soldiers up. We don't need to do that anymore. Today it's more of a cyber warfare. Today it's more about not necessarily getting up there on the front enemy lines. You know, you need to toughen soldiers up in a different way, or do you believe no, we still need to train our soldiers to be tough because the enemy is training their soldiers to be tougher than us. What What, what is your uh, uh, thoughts on that?
1: Oh yeah! Did you see that uh, the video that went around a few months ago that showed the uh, Russian airborne commercial comparing it to, to hour ours? Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, that should that should yeah. tell everybody everything they need to know there. Um, and the part of adapting, looking at what you do on the battlefield, we have 20 years of data right now, uh, incorporating those uh, aspects into our training. Uh, very smart, but. The other side is that uh, uh, when we're talking about adaptability, that cyber warfare piece, yeah, maybe those guys don't need to be doing what we're doing as SEALs because they're fighting a different battle space. They're right here, just like I have no idea how to fight in that space unless they said go to the location and destroy said physical location. Like That's where I excel. Uh, we're getting in there and the different levels of the internet. And because I'm doing all this research for my, my new novel that's coming out next year and, and I'm looking at the cyber warfare piece and the quantum computing piece and the levels of the internet and where these future battles might be fought. Well, they might be fought there, but there's also that chance of an electromagnetic pulse that shuts that stuff down and here we are. We're back to fighting. So fighting, Oh, there's always that primal. That's the one thing that hasn't changed since the beginning of time is that primal Nature of combat that uh, that visceral uh, man to man, person to person in the trenches. That part has stayed fairly much. I mean, as things have evolved, technology-wise, you still it still becomes a person against another trying to kill one another. That part has stayed the same. So you have to keep up with the technology, keep up with the tactic, techniques, procedures, keep learning about your enemy so you can better counter that enemy, so you can better translate if you're a leader some of the uh, directives coming down from higher authorities so you can get the job done uh, there at the tactical level. But it really comes down to you putting another human in the ground, and that part has not changed.
0: Do you think we're tougher today uh, with our training than we were 20 years ago, or... If we're not, uh, what's the consequence of the direction we're going today?
1: Yeah, uh, so I I got out right before all that stuff started to change. Um, So I think by the time I got out in 2016, we were doing a very good job of incorporating lessons learned from downrange. Uh, A lot of the medical stuff had uh, evolved quite a bit uh, over the years because we just had so much learned so much, we learned so much just on the ground in the, in the battle space. Um, So that part, we were doing a good job incorporating that into the pipeline, into the training. Um, But when you let off the gas a little bit to take a, take a breath, which is fine to to do just to make sure you're on the, on the right path. But then if you want to just become more inclusive because of uh, some sort of an equity of outcome type of uh, that's going in the wrong direction uh, I think and that will be uh, our downfall and it's interesting in that last book that I wrote I put myself in the enemy's shoes so I spent about a year and a half looking at the United States through the eyes of, uh, of Iran, of Russia, of North Korea, of China and what was terrifying to me is that by the time I got done with that year writing that book looking at us from the enemy side my I had to make some adjustments to my novel because I thought, you know what? If I was the enemy, we're doing a pretty good job of destroying ourselves from the inside right now. And I could just take back. If I'm China, Russia, there's no need to rush. uh, If I'm those countries, I can take a step back, take a breath and I can just watch us. Do what we're doing to ourselves from the inside. This discord that is perpetuated by uh, a lot of the social media type of algorithms uh, that work for advertising. Well, guess what? Yeah, they also work for political parties, uh, and they work for uh, galvanizing your base and getting support and raising money and that that sort of a thing. So um, it, it was it was disheartening, I guess. Uh, to say the least, that if I was the enemy, I might just watch us for a little bit um, because we're doing a lot of their
0: jobs for them, unfortunately. So, so when, you know, the oath of enlistment, right? When you uh, you and I did that, it's, hey, I, Patrick bid David, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to regulations and Uniform Code of Military Justice. So, so help me God, right? So, okay, this is in uh, 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 Title 10 U.S. Code Act of uh, 5th of uh, May of 1960, replacing awarding first adopted in 1789 with amendment effective 5th October of 1962. Okay, so foreign or domestic, right? What do we do if the enemy to protect the Constitution is domestic, and it has to do with the officers above you, so what what is the right protocol if the people that are domestic, this is you know, the Constitution protected, all enemies, foreign or domestic, what if it's domestic and it's your superiors? How do you handle that?
1: That's the real question. And uh, that's one that I am, I guess glad is the wrong word, but that I'm watching from the sidelines and I'm yeah. exploring the pages of my novels yeah. because uh, it allows me time to think about it, to process it, to, to do exactly what you just just said um, and try to figure that out the best I can, because now there's no doubt there are segments of our society that want to destroy that very thing that you're bearing true faith and allegiance to that constitution that, uh, that guarantees natural rights. Or if you're a God fearing person, uh, uh, rights from God, either way, natural or God given uh, that, that inherent right to self-defense, uh, the right to keep and bear arms, that is that that. Is is something that if you were just up here, here, out of nowhere, with no background, and all of a sudden you just you just appeared on Earth, and someone tried to kill you, it would be a very natural thing to defend that gift of life. And uh, as uh, as a husband, father, uh, as citizen, that's uh, my responsibility is to defend that gift for me, for my family, for my community. Um, And that's a very natural thing. Yet there are elements of our society that want to remove that right enshrined in the Constitution. Uh, And now the First Amendment, the First Amendment used to be something growing up in the 80s that we could all gather around. We, We could say, hey, no matter what, I disagree with what you're saying, but... I will die for your right to say it. That was what made us Americans. And now we're talking about limiting free speech. We're shutting down free speech wherever we possibly can if it doesn't support a certain ideology. It's a very interesting time in these next 10 years, uh, especially as it pertains to
0: the First Amendment, are going to be extremely telling. You know what I'm asking you? Here's why I'm asking you, because you know, to have written all the books that you've written, you, you must have done a ton of research, right? I mean, you like you're talking about right now, you got you know, a deadline to hit, and sometimes you feel uh, God created kids for you to miss deadlines, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know uh, which I, I understand. But when you do all this research, and you, we got, what, 1776 till today. That's our history, right? It's not a lot. It's 245, give or take, whatever. We got, we're about to be 246. 245 years of history. How many times have we had it to the point in the last 245 years where the people that are becoming enemies some of them are domestic and they're your superiors and if we've had that in our history how have we as the people won that fight that battle
1: that is the one thing that gives me hope And i try to be very hopeful in my outward yeah. projection um but uh internally and when i sit down with my wife on the couch at the end of the day and we have a glass of wine together and discuss things um i mean we it Sometimes that conversation is not as hopeful as uh, as what I project. But one of the things that does give me hope is thinking back to that Civil War period and that post Civil War period and what was done to, to try to bring the country together and how Grant did that. Um, it, it, those parts of our history do give me give me hope um, because it was tough back then. Uh, but today, it's yeah we have this new thing and this new thing is these social platforms is everybody has this voice and everyone can be manipulated also by these different platforms um and it's just that part is what was missing back then i try to think hey what if we had social media back then what if you had uh, an Instagram, a TikTok, a Facebook, uh, uh, a LinkedIn. You had YouTube. You had uh, uh, a couple companies controlling a lot of that information. What would that Civil War period and post Civil War period have have looked like with that element? And and I don't know the answer to that, obviously, because they didn't exist back then. But uh, but that's the that's the outlier that is is a lot different from other times in our history. and that time that I'm talking about, that gives me a little hope for going forward, well, they didn't have to deal with some of those things today. These multinational type corporations where the wealth is uh, is up there at, a very, at the very top and there's a lot of control involved in data and information. It's not just about money anymore. It's about data and information and controlling that information and using it to control a populace. Um, and there's no doubt that you can control how someone is thinking based off what you feed them on these channels. So, so it's a different environment and it's a, it's a scary environment for our kids to grow up in, I think, because it's completely uncharted territory. And uh, so I think about that quite a bit.
0: Well, I mean, it, 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 would you say gaslighting is a new thing? You think propagandas are a new thing? They've been around for a while, right? Both of them, gaslighting and propaganda. It's not a new thing. but. What is the biggest difference with it today versus But We've had civil war before. We've all read the story or seen the movie North and South, right? You know, what happened? Where, you know, uh, 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 we can go to history books and go through them. But how much different is it versus today? You'll have a debate with somebody and they'll say, look, the way... The 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 government is set up. You know our system is set up with judicial, executive, legislative. You know it is set up in such a way that you are protected. This can't ever be lost. This can't ever be. You don't even have to worry about a enemy domestically bringing America down. Do you agree with that?
1: Well, up until about twenty years ago, you still had to operate in a way that was very similar how you would have to operate in, say, 1865, let's say, Uh, meaning that if you wanted to control or manipulate, you would have to uh, buy a journalist, you would have to blackmail a journalist, you would have to blackmail a politician, buy a politician um, in the traditional sense of actually purchasing uh, these people or getting information on these people to use to blackmail them. So, uh, so. And a lot of people, companies did that. Companies planted stories. They paid reporters to do things. Um, now, it's, it's, so those things still existed, that propaganda, that manipulation, all that still existed, but you didn't have as many tools. To use, and now you have so many two different tools to use. A lot of them are much more subliminal than uh, sending someone outside of a uh, reporter's house to to, you know, to catch him leaving with someone who wasn't his wife or whatever it might be to use his blackmail. Uh, now you have all this data that is, and every keystroke is it's recorded. I mean, there's a lot of data out there on all of us, and it's controlled by uh, a very few, very few people at the very top. That's a lot of power that's a lot of power to have so uh, so that propaganda and manipulation all that was around but the tools were different back then and those tools that were, existed back then still do exist but now there's a lot more out there to use so it's it's a uh, it, once again it's adapting to that battle space
0: you, as you're writing and your creative imagination is coming up with stories what 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 is your creative imagination thinking about to get somebody to flip or let's just say, a person for the longest time has been a, you know, law-abiding citizen, card-carrying, loving American, patriot, capitalist, you know, constitution protector. And all of a sudden they flip. You know, what, what is the strategy to get somebody to flip? Is it shame? Is it uh, uh, information on what they did against uh, their wife that they don't want to be public because their legacy is going to be tainted? Is it something that they, again, I'm asking purely from your creative side. What are some methods you would add to say, here's a proud citizen that loves America. All of a sudden, he starts giving in to China. All of a sudden, he starts making, you know, uh, certain compromises because there's something behind him. Wh- what would your creative imagination say? Here's five ways to get somebody to flip.
1: Yeah, so all those traditional ones still certainly exist. Um, there are just being more ways to uh, to get where you want to go um, with those. But what's even more dangerous I think today is something, is is a moral vanity where you don't even know that you have been quote unquote flipped, but that you are willing to destroy the bedrock of a nation that gave you all the options and opportunities, all these, from the inception of this country up until today, all these people died to give you the freedom of choice to be able to make your own decisions, not have it dictated to you by a monarchy, um, by a, a a federal government that was going to put you in a certain category. No, you can break out wherever you appear uh, on, this, on this planet, in this country. Uh, you have the option and opportunity to make your own decisions going forward to build the life you want, to make the life you want. Now, we have this moral vanity that has slipped in that allows us and a lot of us at these highest levels that have been afforded all this opportunity that allowed us to build great wealth. Um, and now we want to undermine that for the next generation coming up because of this moral vanity. So that we can, maybe it's going to these these cocktail parties so that you're could you, you you're on the same page as uh, Good Morning America in the morning or uh, MSNBC in the evenings or whoever you watch and you feel good about it because this peer group that is uh, larger than it would have been in the past because of quote unquote friends on social channels and followings and all the rest of it make you empower you to feel this moral vanity that makes you want to undercut what exactly what allowed you to create the life that you wanted. So it's an an amazing thing. And psychologists are going to have a field day with it uh, today and looking back on it because you're destroying the very foundation of the thing that allowed you to succeed.
0: Uh, Jack, you're, you're a 20-year vet, a sniper, an enlisted sniper, Navy SEAL, you've been all over, you've been deployed everywhere, you've written New York Times bestsellers, you're a citizen that takes care of your family, father, married uh and you have a lot of experiences at the same time you know the conversations you have with your wife at night with your family with your peers now that you write these books you're going to be in different circles so you're having conversations that are high level type of conversations who do you trust the least today if you were to say who you trust the least today who would that be organization or individual
1: yeah organization and it's it's uh it, it, it's the military. I'm mean, no, sorry, it's it's, uh, it's the media. Um, but it's interesting that we're walking in to this big tech and this media, as media, big government, L ambush. So you'll remember from your days, the L ambush. And it means that you're walking here in the middle and you have enemy here and here. So if they fire, they get you, they don't hit each other. So that's what we have. We have big tech, big government, but we've lost so much trust in these institutions that we all used to trust as citizens. Uh, and that, that, journalists the media we used to trust them when you'd see these uh see the new york times coming let's say 1975 or you see the washington post in the time frame 85 84 86 you trusted you trusted them and today you think i'm going to be being manipulated by these by these same organizations um they have an agenda they're they are supporting a certain party they are supporting a certain ideology um they are undermining undermining another ideology they're undermining the Exact amendment, that first amendment that allows them to do what they do. Uh, you have journalists, you have other authors, you have people in that space calling for more restrictions on the first amendment, which to me is, I, I mean, I can't believe it as a kid that, that grew up before that, uh, that, that became now acceptable. Um and, and that part is just uh yeah, just heartening to me as a citizen. So if I have to pick one, it's an institution, it's not a person, it's the it's the media, it's something we used to trust. Okay. And so you have a legacy trust, especially from older people. But uh today it's uh How about we you, play you a game.
0: Can't Trust. Let's play a game. I like playing games, uh and and maybe we can we can play a game together. I'll give you uh uh an organization and you tell me zero to ten what your trust score would be. Okay. Oh, Instead of doing a speed round, we're gonna do a uh a, organization and you tell us what you're are you a sports guy or no are you i'm like, not okay. i am not my, my sports is uh international relations i guess and staying up to date with uh, <laughs> things like that i love I never it so that's gonna guy. be perfect because none of this is sports so this is fantastic perfect. wonderful all right so let's start zero to ten uh do you trust uh, uh the general of army navy air force marines that they have the best interest for america zero to ten i'm gonna put that at a six or seven okay cool all right. How about mainstream media? Zero. No shit. Okay. How about president of the United States? That's a tough one because it's fairly
1: obvious we're dealing with something that we haven't really dealt with before, which is cognitive decline in a you know head of state um, in this country. But uh, so I'm going to go ahead and put that at a uh, two or three. Okay. How about China? And that only two or three it only gets two or three because I still have a little bit of, of hope left in me uh, that's, a, I hope to be a positive looking person that 's the only reason it gets that.
0: What an optimistic guy you are, man. that was just fantastic. <laughs> How about China zero to 10? Uh, zero. okay. How about the, um, you know the major virtual governments i 'm talking Twitter for, you know today Dorsey signed you know uh, resigned, and the new guy took over he 's going to also get off the board himself. How about you, trust in virtual governments, Facebook, YouTube, Google, Twitter, all those guys?
1: I'm going to say a one. And the okay. only reason I give it a one is because it had, they they, they had potential. They had potential to uh, to have that sort of trust that, uh, that we had in established media back 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, but it doesn't exist anymore. Do you They've think they can still
0: trust. change? Do you think it can change? I think it's too big of a machine. Okay. Okay. Uh, how about the, the top ten richest men and women in America? I'm talking Bezos. You know, you talk uh, uh, Elon Musk. All those guys. Top ten. Do you trust? them? Uh, I'd have to look at the list because it does
1: shift. So I'm gonna go with a with a five uh, there okay. because I know I know some of those guys in that in that top ten list, um, and I, I trust them implicitly. Um, but uh, but some of the others, uh, the, and, and some of the ones that I don't know or that I've just met in, in passing that uh, that I don't. Um, yeah, so it's it's. So I'm gonna give it a five just okay. because that list does does change. How about the one? So a lot of those people are self-made. I mean, you look at some of no these. No question about I mean, it. Yeah, and so that's the people I was talking about earlier. They get up to this. So how, this how about if I
0: give specifics? Bezos, Musk, Buffett, uh, Gates. Uh, and and let's stay at that. Those four names. Yeah,
1: Musk uh, and Buffett on the, on the on the positive side. The other two probably on the other. Okay, fair and enough. I'm still, I'm still still puts me at a five. Still puts me at fifty fifty.
0: Jack, how about the wonderful journalists that we have in America? Yeah, there's so few actual journalists.
1: Um, you have to really seek out um, people that are doing that job, like a uh, Glenn Greenwald, or uh, you have you have to seek out those people that are after the truth, no matter where it falls uh, without trying to manipulate that data or write things in a certain way so that it uh, it supports their ideology and their personal agenda. So you really have to do the homework on quote unquote journalists, because there are so few these days that are doing it in the, uh, in the tradition that we think of as journalists in this country, going out after the truth, um, exposing the truth, uh, holding, uh, Leader's feet to the fire, exposing corruption, speaking truth to power. Those things are in short supply these days. How about a Fauci? I just can't. Yeah, let's just put that at a. Let's put that at a one because
0: of uh, the hope factor. Did you see him on Face the Nation today? Did you Did you see him? I on,
1: didn't. I saw a couple of the headlines, but yeah. I uh, I did not dive in yet.
0: I mean, if you want to have a motivating day about 2022, watch it. It'll inspire you. It's it's a very uh, oh really it's a very uh, sarcastically very optimistic is is is, oh. is, uh, is the direction i'm going with it uh oh, man. yeah you know it, it, it's uh, it's i've never seen him this arrogant in an interview than the one i saw today it was a very little bit weird on how it was you know typically he takes a very neutral position uh and he'll still go you know you will know what side he leans towards but today was uh if, if you don't, if these politicians question somebody like me who's a scientist, I'm the guy that represents science, and we know what we're doing, and here's what we're going to be doing. It was just very concerning on the way he took the approach, you know, on uh, 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 the angle he took. Question for you from the data side. So, you know how uh, uh, we've all seen the data when China puts out the data and they say, our un- unemployment rate in China right now is 2%. We're like, wow what an amazing and noble job they're doing to keep the unemployment only <laughs> at 2%, right? And I feel bad for the people that believe that it's only 2%, uh, uh, with one and a half billion people living there and some of the stuff that leaks out sometimes. When it comes down to data in America and the data that's put out to us, how much of the data do you trust and who do you trust it from? Like, you know, for example, what, the reason why I'm asking this question from you is... Um, If you and I were to go buy a house today, and you want to buy a million dollar house, whatever, you you want to put $200,000 down, the bank is going to say, yeah, no problem, let's run a credit score, okay? And they go to Experian, you know, TransUnion, Equifax, your score comes up, 728, 745, 738, you're fine, you've had one late in the last three years, and you fixed it because it was a car payment, you had a wrong checking account, you're good, we'll finance you for this million dollars, 20% now, you're good to go, great. So they have a source to go to verify your credibility, right? Where do we go to verify the credibility of the people that are giving us the data?
1: That's it. We can't. That's why. That's why we we don't have this trust. This this trust has been eroded so much between big tech and the citizen, between big government and the citizen, uh, and each opportunity that both big tech, big government, media has to build some trust, they do the opposite. They continue to uh, to use their platforms, their data, to support a certain ideology um, that marginalizes uh, almost half the country and continues to divide the country which does what well it uh it galvanizes bases for politicians it gets more clicks on things for social media it gets more advertisers in front but you know that's just the base level uh, that's just the base level stuff that's fine that makes them uh extremely wealthy um but what it really does is give them data and gives them information on how to future to manipulate in the future not just to make you uh you know buy a set of steak knives but to uh, get you to vote a certain way, um, to get you to think a certain way, that is where we have lost all this trust. And that's really the power that these uh, tech giants have. And going back to that, uh, let's go back to the military part real quick, because I don't want to say six or seven trust in the military. And uh, when we look at that exit from Afghanistan, though, that we had 20 years to prepare for that moment. 20 years. Uh, we had 20 years of our own experience. We could have gone back to the Soviet experience there. 10 years from 79 to 89. We could have gone back to three British incursions in the 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, we didn't have to go back to Alexander the Great. We didn't have to, have to go back to, to Genghis Khan. We had our own. We could have just took any one of those years that we have been in Afghanistan. Let's say from March of 2002, let's say let's, let's give us a few months where we had a uh, culminating, uh, point of victory, uh, in those early days that we went past, uh, culminating point of victory and turn that success into failure. Um, so we had all those years to prepare and we rushed to failure. We ran to failure and, uh, and we have civilian control of the military, but, uh, but we also have a military that had 20 years to prepare for this as well, for these contingencies. And it didn't come as a shock to to me or to most, uh, people that I know that it ended the way it did. So, uh, that's that trust in military that took a hit. Right there. You have a company that has 20 years to prepare for something. They know it's coming. They know exactly what's what's happening and they screw it up that bad. They couldn't have done it worse had they've been actively trying to do it the worst job that they possibly could. So I'm lowering my score for military. I'm going back to three or four.
0: How much of that credit? how much of that responsibility goes on the leaders of the different branches that we have versus the president? I mean, we know Commander-in-Chief is President Biden. That's who it is today, right? That's who the commander-in-chief is. But how much of it is the general, the army, navy, marines, air force saying, no, 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 guys, we, we can't do this. This is not the right approach. And, and the meeting, you know, where, because you, you're in meetings where sometimes maybe you're reporting to somebody that's above you, you're superior, and you got to say, boss, I'm telling you, we have to take a different route. This is not going to work out well for us. Let's reconsider this. How much of it is them not giving enough pushback rather than just saying, OK, let's just go ahead and do this, costing us $83 billion of equipment we left behind to the Taliban?
1: Oh, yeah, it's a lot. I mean, we re- it's easy for the military to say uh, politicians lost the war. You know, it's a very common thing to say uh, in Vietnam after Vietnam. Um, but uh, we can see. General after general after general going in front of Congress from 2001 all the way up to just a few months ago, saying the exact same things. We are making progress. Just need a little more time, a little more funding, more troops. And that's not a president telling them to say that. That is them going in front of Congress and giving their honest, quote unquote, honest assessment uh, to congressional leadership and to the American people. And by default to their troops who are watching them give these speeches and give this testimony. Um, and you can pick out any time: 2004, 2008, 2012, you can pick out, it sounds exactly the same. They all sound, they say the exact same thing. If you could go back and pick out how many times they said we are making progress. Uh, just need more troops, more funding, more resources they all said that. And the one guy who didn't, uh, and I don't want to say his name because I'm going to mess it up. Um, but it was like 2009, let's say, but it was somewhere right in the middle. And he's the one guy who raised some questions. Well, guess what? He was replaced. A few months later and that hadn't happened since uh, macarthur in korea and he did that because he raised concerns about how much progress we were actually making and that's what happens and that sent a message to the rest of our flag level officers hey this is what happens when you tell the truth this is what happens when you give your actual honest assessment you're not around much longer and off you go to pasture. Um so that was probably one of the most devastating things that happened over the last 20 years is for senior level leaders to see what happened to the one person who said the truth and he got fired
0: yeah but I think uh, uh, I think even with that man I think we I think if 20 people get fired no one got fired you, you know what I'm saying if, if one person got fired yeah one person got fired but if 50 people get fired America cannot afford to have 50 people to fire I don't know if that makes sense or not so you know a a uh, you're running a company and you know you got, uh, your name is Ford and 50% of your employees uh, come to you and they say, look, we can't work 66 hours a week in these kind of conditions. You gotta give us a retirement plan. You gotta give us health insurance. You gotta give us a bit of a raise. This is just not gonna work out, right? Ford can't say, ah, whatever, guys, go ahead. We're gonna keep doing it. No, you can't afford to do that, right? But if one person does that and two people do that, a small percentage complain, fine. You're always gonna have that and you're never gonna please everybody. I think, I think if more people would have stood up, the hell are you gonna say if the four people, if the four general, the army, Marines, Air Force, Navy, is all on the same page saying, President, this is a terrible idea. We're not doing this, it's just a terrible idea. Uh, uh, who are you gonna fire, all four of them? I mean, that's just a catastrophic situation there. Anyways, you, you, yeah. que- you question the backbone, and again, look, I'm not in that position for me to put all the responsibility on them. I don't know where it is to put the responsibility on them. I know what it is to have lived in Iran for 10 years, and a decision Carter made on the human rights, hoping to, you know, uh, uh, help out Iran with the 3,000 political prisoners under the Shah, or the, you know, political refugees, or you know, the Muriel Boltliff in Cuba. And next thing you know, it backfired on America and it backfired on Iran. And we know what happened with Iraq: half a million people got killed because of a bad decision. We don't yet know the repercussions of the decisions that we made. We may not even see the side effects of this for the next five to 10 years. Um, that's so why I wonder like, how do you not just look at your leader and say, this is a bad idea. We're gonna be united on this against you, I don't know. Um, you, ever, yeah. you, you ever been in a not meeting much. yourself where your leader told you what to do and you guys, your peers sat there and say, this is a bad idea. I'm not asking for names. You ever had, how many instances like that did you have to tell the person you report to, this is not a good idea?
1: usually they're coming down from above that person and they're parroting something that comes above yeah. from even higher because I was at such a low I was at yeah. such a low tactical level um so I didn't have those sort of strategic level level meetings so they were more like why is this person just parroting what has been uh this person is useless they're just saying What's coming down the pike here? I didn't need them to sit in that seat and just parrot. Um, what we need to do is figure out how to make this work, uh, make this new policy, this new directive, this new guidance, uh, whatever it might be. Now we have to do the uh, the on the ground, boots on the ground, problem solvers, aggressive problem solvers, and maybe turn a good idea around uh, and, and and make it work for us, and and then be able to explain it to the guys that are going to be even one level below us um, uh, in a way that makes sense. Um, because if you lose that trust. If you just parrot what comes down the pike, uh, the E five on the couch, he uh, waiting in the platoon space. He he noticed. They 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 know, and you lose that trust. And everything you do in the military or in life, I think, is an opportunity to build trust, both up and down the chain of command, side to side with your peers. Um, and you have to take advantage of it. And what we're doing in this country right now, is we're losing trust at every opportunity. It seems, which is yeah, uh, once again, just disheartening.
0: Yeah, I I. I um... What, what, what percentage of the guys that executed the plan on leaving Afghanistan knew was a bad idea? What would you say? If you were to guess, it's an odds game. I'm not telling you, know the answer. What would you say? The percentage of the leaders that executed what was told, what they were ordered to do knew it was a bad idea. I would have to say 99% or hundred. I agree with almost. you. I agree with and you. So can't the 99% say, guys, what the, what are we doing? You know what I'm saying? This shit's know. not going to work. Like, I, I, well, that's what we trust them to do. Like, when you're looking up that chain of command, yeah. uh, that's
1: their responsibility. Like, if we mess up down here at the tactical yeah. level, we're going to be held accountable, for sure. If you make a mistake up here, no accountability. You retire, you go sit on the boards of one of these companies that has defense industry type of ties. Yeah, Northrop Grumman, um, Raytheon. Right so, Exactly. So to see to, to so to see them not stand up to that plan and why it's so frustrating to everyone is because, once again, Colin von wrote on war. He said that the most important attribute of a, of a leader, of a military leader is common sense. That's why the person with zero military experience has never read a book on the military, can look at Afghanistan and just take a, take five minutes and look at it and see what a bad idea it is to give up Bagram. Hey, Why give up a tactically advantageous position and put your troops in a tactically disadvantageous position? That doesn't make sense. Oh, great. You know why? Because that person who has never had any military experience or read a book on strategy or international relations or any, or tactics can look at it with that eye, with that common sense and say, this does not make sense. Um, and yet our senior military leaders uh, you know, stood by and did almost nothing as from the outside looking at it, I'm not in there anymore, obviously. So, uh, but that's what it looks like from the outside, and what we saw happen at Abbey Gate uh, when we saw all those uh, all those deaths and a lot more people that are that are
0: wounded that we don't even hear about. Um, that's the result. Jack, I got two other questions for you before we wrap up. One of them is, uh, 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 you know, when you're uh, like I interviewed the former director of uh, Mossad. Him and I were sitting down, I think Shabbat was his name. I'm trying to see what his name was. Really interesting guy, we had a conversation together. And I said, hey, you know, you guys haven't been around that long. Who trained you? He says, nobody trained us. I said, okay. Who did you train? Well, we trained some of our enemies, but we don't train them on everything. I said, okay. But when I was in Iran, you would hear about Savag, and they would say, who trained Savak? Well, the CIA trained Savag. Who else trained Savag? Mm-hmm. MI6 trained Savag. Okay. Cool. And then you go and see China. China's intelligence right now is maybe the best and no one's even recognizing them. You know, they're top two, top three, but nobody knows how they're training themselves, right? So uh, the question I would have for you is, when it comes down to us training our allies, what is the protocol that we follow in training our allies where you don't train them too much to know everything? You know that one day they won't flip on you like what's been happening lately with some countries that used to be allies, now they're enemies. That's right. Even before September 11th, this was a conversation that we had yeah. uh, because we did J sets,
1: we did training exercises around the world with partner nations, with host yep. nation forces. Yep. And we always say, hey, let's be a little bit careful. This is us. This is the E fours, E-fives, E-sixes, chiefs. These are the people here that are on the ground doing it. That's not coming from above. It's not saying, hey, don't make sure you don't teach this, 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 Got or this. It. It's us on the ground having that common sense, again, saying, eh. But it's tough also when you're doing combat foreign internal defense, meaning you're going out there into the streets of Ramadi with a partner force. Uh, or you're in Afghanistan, you're training up a partner force and you're going out and executing these missions. Um, because your life the lives of your guys to the right and left are—they're right there, and depending on the host nation force. So you do want them to be as trained up as you as they possibly can be. But now, look what's happened—all that training, all that. Uh, because Afghanistan, as as I'm sure sure you know, it's a very natural thing to change sides. Why not go to the strongest warlord side? That makes sense. If not, guess what's happening to me and my family? We're going to get skinned alive and uh, hung from this tree. Uh, so we're going to go over to that side. So it's a very natural thing. Loyalty's it a little bit different over there. Um, so now they have all these weapons, all this technology, uh, all this training. And for even people that fought on our side, uh, some are now on the other side because that makes sense now that keeps them and their families alive that's the uh, that's the the tactical choice that they're that they're making and is part of the culture. And that's something we didn't really understand going in. We totally failed to understand the nature of the conflict to which we were committing forces. We had this imperial hubris that uh, allowed us to go in and say, hey, we're the United States of America. We had initial successes. And then we thought, oh, we got this. Let's shift focus to Iraq. Um, Osama bin Laden escapes into Pakistan. Uh, we start nation building. Anyway, you could point to all these different uh, uh, missteps from that point on. But from December 2001, uh, we handled that situation very. Poorly, but our senior-level leaders—it's their responsibility to understand the nature of the conflict to which they are engaging U.S. Uh, committing U.S. forces—and they failed to do that. And they had 20 years to learn, and they failed over that entire 20-year period. Um, so, so yeah, I do, uh, <laughs> I do look at them with a, a critical eye. But I guess the good part today is that it gives me a lot of a lot of material to work with in the novels.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a, a part of it where. I sometimes wonder. I'm like, I understand training your your own self, but people that are going to be with us long term, where you're again, domestic or uh, uh, you know, um, foreign or domestic, you know, you want to train the people that are here. But sometimes we feel we're building our enemies even bigger. We're experiencing that with China right now. Everything we do with capitalism, China duplicated. Now China's everybody's relying so much on China with the chips, with everything that they're doing that we have no choice. We strengthen our enemy. Now they're bullying us, and we are the leaders of the free world, it's a little bit of a weird situation there. But last yeah. question here, I had Mike Ritland on. Mike Ritland, I'm sure you know who Mike Ritland is. Yeah. Uh, he was on with us on the podcast, we had a great time. And a conversation came about, during that time they were talking about women in Navy SEAL. He gave his opinion on women on Navy SEAL. And, but recently, I, I don't know if you saw Bill Maher on Chris Cuomo. And a conversation about transgender came out. If you've not seen it, I highly recommend, you know, you go watch it, Jack. It's absolutely, by the way, you're not going to find it on CNN's YouTube channel. you got to find it on somebody else's YouTube channel. I'll text it to you afterwards, like 34 minutes. Right. I have the link. It's a must watch. He made a very good argument to him. Um, but w- what do you say to Navy SEAL that's now, you know, somebody came out a couple of years ago talking about the fact that they're transgender, former Navy SEAL. I don't know if you saw that story or not, uh, 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 if you followed it. Kristen beck i think it's the name of the individual that now is uh, transgender do you think how do you think the seal cream of the crop at that level special ops type of guys delta you know navy seal how do you think they should treat uh uh, training women as well as transgender uh uh, in regards to their units
1: well the women one i thought a lot more about than the the transgender one because it's uh the transgender one i'm just not quite sure what means what and how we anyway i'm not i'm not quite prepared to think that through from because any from women coming in wanting to be men men coming in wanting to be women i've just there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but when it comes to, to, to females in combat ground forces, particularly special operations, um, so they've been on the front lines with us from the beginning of the war on. Um, so they're, they've are they been right there. They haven't been entering rooms and getting shot in the face, that sort of a thing, but they've been right there with us in these supporting roles. And supporting roles sounds, um, you know, like, it's not the right word because they're, they are right there. Um, and for me, like I grew up, as a lot of people did, uh, opening doors. You're taught to open a door for for a female. You're open. You're taught to stand up, offer your seat to, to a, a lady that gets on a bus or a train or something like that. Stand up when a woman enters the room. Um, treat them with disrespect. Uh, uh, but almost, you know, you're putting them on this, you're, it's, it's disrespect and this putting them on this pedestal type thing. So for me, there is no possible way that is a combat leader, I would be able to treat uh, a female exactly the same as I would one of the guys. I just, it's not, I'm not programmed that way. Uh, For whatever reason, I'm programmed to protect females. That's how I was raised, and that's in my DNA. I don't think I need to be raised that way. I think it's just innate in us as humans uh, to protect those who are going to carry on and make sure that, that, that uh, our bloodlines and our species continue to move forward after we're dead. And that's why we go forward and, uh, and gets, get cut up and killed in combat all the time, protecting them. Um, so for me, it would be very difficult to treat them exactly the same way as I would uh, a guy who's a, a dude. That's just how it is. Um, now, the other side of that is, you know, you have daughters and you want them to have the same opportunities as, and, and freedoms that, uh, that their male counterparts have. So there is a, definitely a, a, a discongruence there in that, in that line of thought. But once again, it's just very natural to protect the females and the species, whether they want to be or not. You know that's uh sorry uh and that's why i'm glad i got out before that became something i had to deal with once again i can deal with that in the pages of the novels because maybe this next yeah. generation isn't going to be maybe it's going to be like starship troopers and they're going to treat each other just the same it doesn't matter if you're a female uh or you're a male you're both yeah. you're running into that you're running into that uh, uh those machine gun bullets just the same it doesn't uh, it doesn't matter maybe we're getting to that point and is that a good thing I don't know, you might wanna protect that person that's gonna make sure that the bloodline continues. Um, We have for most of human history, and uh, for most of human history, you had to be good at a couple of things. You had to be a good hunter, and you had to be a good fighter. Um, and only very, very recently have we been able to outsource both of those things by uh, calling 911 uh, and going down to the local grocery store to get food. Uh, that is of uh, the smallest portion of human history. Um, so I think in all of us, there is that natural tendency to still be a protector, to still be a provider. Um, I think it's in there. It's getting bred out of us, though, by uh, once again, by every single input that we have. Uh, almost, almost every single input that we have from big tech, big government, big media, um, legacy media. uh, They're all preaching something different. And hey, I don't know if the lights go out tomorrow and all of a sudden we're back to what we've been for most of human history, having to be good at those things. Maybe that dynamic changes a little bit. Maybe we're not so concerned about uh, equality of uh, uh, equity of outcomes and all those sorts of things that are really uh,
0: uh, just undermining the very foundations of this country. So, you know, we'll see. I, I, you know, I ask that question because, um, you know, a part of me it's like, okay, one, uh, do, are there a lot of women that want to be Navy SEALs? Because if there is, well, great, that's fantastic. That's one question. Second thing, is the media try to, you know, uh, pin them against each other? Like, I don't know if you saw an article that came out from Variety yesterday, and uh, 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 about gamers. Did you see that article yesterday about gamers Uh-oh. or no? Uh, uh, where, you know, the top 300 gamers tournaments that's going on right now, not a single one of them is uh, women. Why is that? Why is it such a sexist space that gamers are not uh, women? Now, that's a little bit of a weird uh, 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 article to do, so question I would ask is, how many women want to be gamers? Do you want to be a gamer? Do you want to be in that space? If you do, great. Do you really want to sit there playing 10 hours of video games to compete there? Fantastic. If that's your world, go do it. So Navy SEAL, do you want to go be a Navy SEAL? Yes, I do. Great. So if that's the case, does it work? Does it make the environment uncomfortable? Are guys not going to be acting like themselves? Because, you know, when guys are with guys, you tell us certain jokes. The moment you put somebody else there, maybe you get uncomfortable. You know, um, and then the other part is... Yeah. I got friends that are more uh, uh, metro and uh, uh, what do you call it? They have more estrogen than testosterone, and I have female friends that have more testosterone than estrogen. You ever met some of your friends where you're like, "Oh my gosh, you dude, you, you know you're one chromosome away from being Mary, you know," and and, and then you have a, a friend that they're one chromosome away from being you know Bobby, you know, where it's like the level of toughness. Like Ronda Rousey can probably whoop 90% of guys' asses. If she fights them, what if she wants to be a Navy SEAL? Would it would it be good for it to be a Navy SEAL? I don't know. Uh, so I wonder how much of it is mainstream media just needs another story to pin people against each other, so we talk about it versus how much of it is actual demand for women wanting to be Navy SEALs.
1: Yeah, I always go back to hey, does it make us a more effective? No matter what it is, it doesn't have to be women wanting to be SEALs. It can be it can be anything. Um, and hey, does this make us a more effective and efficient fighting force? And if the answer is no, then Don't do it, military. Uh, Focus on winning wars. Focus on being prepared for war. That is why you exist. That's why you get these insane budgets. Um, And so, so that's the question. So for me, it doesn't really come down to a uh equality and equity and making sure everyone but no it's uh it comes down to does this make us a more effective and efficient fighting force uh and for me uh you know but it it's me maybe it's just uh, maybe I'm the I'm the Neanderthal and uh and and uh yeah and maybe it maybe having a female in the platoon space is a good thing for all the guys in there I don't know. I've seen what happens when a, uh, a female walks into uh, a tactical operations center overseas. Uh, it changes the dynamic, and not in a good way. No, and it's a sad. It's I hate to say that, but it's the truth. And today, you can't really, you know, you tell the tell the truth. You get you get you get uh, shot down. You get canceled. But uh, I mean, it does change the dynamic. I mean, you, you, guys you, are guys. You know, it's and it, it totally changes the dynamic I, of I the agree. whole situation. I mean, you know, hey. <laughs> You know, I
0: interviewed a lot of comedians. And the one thing I can tell you about comedians is most comedians, I'm not saying all of them, but most comedians lived a very tough life. They had a dad who has a temper, used to drink, hit him or mom left or some shitty situation that they had, right, where they become comedians. So why? Because, you know, their their savior was laughing at stuff, right? It's like, dude, the only way I can, my medicine is let me make people laugh, let me make myself laugh because I have to go home and see my dad beat my mom up or my dad beat me up and my brother up, and I just, it's my only way to release, right? It's a very common trend with many comedians. Military, you know, when you're in that kind of a pressure type of an environment, I mean, sarcasm, jokes, laughter, shots, you know, not shots like shots like taking shots at each other, condescending witty it almost seemed like that was the medicine to overcome the whatever situation you're in and it's tough to explain uh you explain it to a regular person they'll say well that's not the right way to, <laughs> to deal with people and that's just not how right. you're supposed to treat people and michael jordan said in his uh, uh documentary the last dance there's a scene in The Last Dance where he says, I remember when I was a kid and my brother, I think his name is Adrian, we're playing basketball. And he says, Michael, you just go out there. You're like a kid. You don't know what you're doing. Let us men here go build something. And Jordan explains, he says, when I'm going, he says, you know, when you're going through it, it's so hard because you're questioning yourself as a manhood. He says, but that's exactly what made me tough to be able to go and compete the way I did in the military. You can't describe that to the average person that's living in a regular Lala Land versus what it is in the military But again, look, like you said, maybe we are Neanderthals, you know, you from Utah, me, Middle Eastern from Florida. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Anyways, Jack, I really enjoyed this. Uh, uh, What we're going to do is we're going to put the link below to all your books, Uh, folks. Every one of his books has over 7000 reviews. So you pick and choose which one you want to do. The number one bestseller was Devil's Hand. We'll put the link uh, below for you guys to go pick it up. And uh, looking forward to seeing your next book coming up. Jack, with that being said, appreciate you for making the time for being a guest on Valuetainment.
1: Oh, man. Thank you so much for having me on. And you know, there's one thing that we talked about earlier that kind of feeds in. And I heard Larry Ellison talk about it in an interview. And uh, I've been very fortunate to spend some, some time with him. And he said, I had all the disadvantages necessary for success. And I love that because you have so many people Sick. complaining, uh, especially you have children, everybody has children will know, uh, your kids complain about a lot of things, but, uh, you know, have to, to say that to identify, Hey, I, I had all the disadvantages necessary for success. I just, I just love that. And, uh, to me, it speaks to, you know, it speaks to what this country allows you to go out and do and create and invent and crush. So, um, so I, yeah, that's just fantastic. I think.
0: I'm with you, buddy. Well, the Uh, I'm glad that we're still living in the greatest country in the world, and there's people like you that want to keep it that way. So, appreciate your courage, man. Truly, thank you. Thank you so much. You take care. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. If you did, give it a thumbs up and subscribe. I got two videos I want you to watch. One of them is Mike Ritland, former Navy SEAL, who wasn't as diplomatic about his answers with women being Navy SEALs. Here's what he had to say about it. And the other one is probably... One of my favorite interviews in regards to a sniper from UK who has the world record, right? The longest shot ever in the world as a sniper with 80 confirmed kills. If you've never seen that one, click over here. Absolutely fascinating interview. Having said that, have a great one, everybody. Take care, bye-bye.